welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. This is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. And we provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon. So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. Good morning. My name is Adam Sturgeon, and this is the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Today, I get to record with uh, Detective Moses Castillo. Uh, Detective Castillo worked in LAPD for over 30 years, and uh, he grew up in East LA and did some primitive years of his life down in uh, San Diego County. Um, after being a detective, he just retired and now is working as a resident detective for the Dordulian Law Group, and he is advocating for victims of childhood sex abuse and adult sexual assault. So I, I know you spent a lot of years in this area, Detective Castillo, but I, and I really appreciate you coming on, talking to me this morning. Well, good morning. Good morning, Adam. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a great honor and appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. You have way more experience doing this stuff than I do. So I do appreciate you coming in uh, and indulging me and, and hopefully listeners get something out of this conversation. I know you're working hard out there, so I appreciate you coming on this morning. Absolutely. So let's get started. Um, really, I like to start with just kind of find out more about you and you know how you grew up and your life and just what kind of got you through um, your younger years and into this uh, world of policing. Yeah, you know what? Thank you for asking that because uh, sometimes I still you know pinch myself to realize that a, a young boy being uh, raised by a single mom with two older sisters in the heart of East Los Angeles, where it was gang infested, where I actually decided I had to do one of two things, you know, um, I either join a gang or I don't, right? And, uh, you know, it was part of the survival, you know. So one of the things I, I feared the most growing up, when I use the word fear for, for my mom, I kind of pretty much mean a, more of a reverence fear for my mom. So I feared my mom and I feared the, the gang next door. And so I had, you know, I decided to just do my best to honor my mom. And, and uh, yeah, and so that's how it started. You know, um, so because I was in East L.A., the L.A. County Sheriff's Department had jurisdiction in the area that, that I lived in, and that's the East, East, East Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's Office. And uh, I, I remember vividly, uh, as a, I was probably about five, six years old, when I started to notice this deputy sheriff, Drive, drive up and down our street patrolling. And every time I see him, I go, wow, he looks pretty cool. And uh, he looked, you know, I could tell he was going somewhere. And sometimes it's with lights and sirens. And one day I actually called the police because uh, our car was stolen from inside our garage. And I remember it was an early Sunday morning. And who shows up? This deputy sheriff that I, that I saw. And when I saw him get out of the car and I see him, for, you know, up close and personal, he looked like the Superman and a deputy sheriff. You know, from him, he was he was solid. He was built uh, with muscles, and he had that clean cut haircut. You know, uh, glasses. I mean, he literally did look like Clark Kent in in the deputy uh, sheriff's uniform. And I was like in awe, and I was like, wow. So we, I had to translate for my mom because you know she she's only a Spanish speaker, and so I told him what happened and. Lo and behold, you know, as a young kid, three days later, we get a phone call in the middle of the night, like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and they say it's a sheriff's department, and we found your car. And I'm thinking, and again, I'm have to I have to translate for my mom. Right. And I'm still half asleep, <laughs> and uh, 
the guy says, hey, we have your car. Can you ask your mom if uh, so-and-so had permission to drive it? And so I asked her, she said, no, I don't even know who that is. Okay, well, he's going to jail. You guys can come pick up your car. So in my mind, I'm thinking Superman, man, he caught the bad guy and he returned our car. That was pretty cool. And, and I believe that was the beginning of the seed being planted in my heart to want to do that. Hey, I want to catch bad guys. I want yeah. to you know, help. And I believe that was the beginning of, of now, you know, pursuing this career in law enforcement. How old were you at that time? At that time, um, when I first spotted him in our neighborhood, I was probably about five or six. But by that time, we I had to call the police. I must have been like seven or, or eight, uh, somewhere around third grade, and uh, or even second grade. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, pretty cool to to see that play out, and uh, and I was really like in awe of what just happened. Yeah, I think that's an, that's uh, important because I mean, you, we don't. I think we don't think about that sometimes when we're making that impression on young children out there. You know, they see us come up to do whatever it is, whatever investigation it is, and you know, they are in awe of us. But you know, we we think of it as another call, but you know, for them, it's like this is the world. You know, so that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's a great story. Being impressed by them, and in, at that age, I mean, I think we a lot of us starting. In that time, like you know, five, six, seven is like when I, you know, when you want to be a police officer. Yeah, yeah, and then eventually we ended up moving out to, you know, uh, Carlsbad for my latter years and my junior high years and high school years. Right, so that's where I spent uh, my teens in the city of Carlsbad, which is just uh, south of uh, uh, Oceanside in San Diego County, and you know, and I and I was kind of pursuing a career in. Uh, you know, to be a teacher, you know, I was, I was working with kids. I was the program youth director at the Carlsbad Boys and Girls Club Okay. for, for their pre, uh, preschool and after school uh, programs. And I was only 16 years at the time, but they, you know, they saw something in me and they actually promoted me as the, the director. So I actually was supervising people older than me in these programs, but I was really connecting with, you know, teachers, people in the community, parents, and uh, there was a parent that was a police officer at the Carlsbad Police Department. His name was Dean Spinos. And uh, he uh, he invited me one day when he was picking up his son. And at the program, he says, hey, uh, would you like to go on a run along? And I said, sure. And, you know, uh, coming from L.A. and Carlsbad, you know, it's day and night. And so, yeah, a little bit different. <laughs> but, yeah, a little bit different. But I really liked the whole showing up to work. And I saw him, you know get into the men's locker room and putting on his uniform, his vest, his badge, his gun belt, and then go to roll call. And just watching that alone, right, there was like, wow, this is so cool. I want to do this. And that really sparked uh, my interest to maybe not pursue a teaching career, but law enforcement. And then uh, he responded to some pretty uh, crazy traffic collisions, and he went to court. So I kind of saw a little bit of everything. I didn't see anything too crazy, but what I did like, I, I saw his his approach with people and his in the community and his interaction, and I really was attracted to that. That hey, that's is pretty cool. I want to help the community, you know. And uh, you know, as a matter of fact, when I joined LAPD, within a year or two, uh, Carlsbad PD offered me a position. And, oh, really? But I declined it because I just I felt that LAPD had more to offer as far as an opportunity to really expand and promote and do that so yeah that's uh that's pretty much how it started for me is again another officer you know had a 
sense of influence in my life. Of, and then he, he gave me some good insights as to uh, police officers and what they do and what they stand for and what it's all about. And uh, so, yeah, hopefully one day I get to run into him again and, and thank him for that. So uh, Dean Spino, uh, he, uh, he's since retired from the Carlsbad Police Department. Uh, great guy. So I owe him for, for this because he has played, he probably has no clue the impact he had in my life and therefore it's a domino effect. And then yeah. the impact I've had in people's lives in, in, in my career. So, so how did yeah. you end up, how do you end up deciding to go to LAPD at the time? Like, what made you apply for, to LA? Well, they had a, a LAPD uh, and they still have this program. It's, it's the reserve program and they, they start you at as, as early as 18. So I, I figured, you know what, let me be a reserve first. So I, I was just turning 19 at the time. I applied for LAPD as a reserve just to see if I like it, and uh, and I did. You know, and I saw you know, a lot of crazy stuff even early on. You know, I saw a police officer from Hollenbeck, uh, Joe Acosta. You know, he died in an off-duty uh, motorcycle accident, and uh, but I became pretty good friends with him. And uh, and just, just he was in charge of the reserve program, and he was also in charge of the uh, cadet program. And, and just to see how the officers, uh, you know, they're a family and they were there for supporting his family. And just I saw that firsthand and I saw how cool it was, you know, uh, the, the brotherhood, sisterhood of you know, law enforcement. I really liked that a lot. And so that really uh, solidified in my mind, in my, in my heart. That uh, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. Because it's not. It was. It wasn't just a job. It's not just a, a career. It really is a calling. It's a calling in, in lives. And you know, for me, there is a spiritual component to this. I do believe that the desires of our heart are placed there to begin with. You know, by God Himself. And uh, so I, I'm grateful and thankful that uh, you know He put that desire in my heart. And every step of the uh, every phase that I, I I was in during the selection process, I would always pray, okay, because I I didn't get selected right away. You know, I, I as a young kid in East LA, I got hit by a car twice, oh, so wow. my legs were jacked up. Yeah, so a uh, little bow legged you know, to be, you know, I'm better now, but uh, running was always a very challenging part for me. So I initially wasn't accepted uh, because of my issues with my legs, but then I appealed it and I asked for the pew and they said, okay, we'll give you a, a second chance to, you know, run three miles for the next three weeks, every, every other day or whatever, and come back and report to us. And I did that, and the doctor passed me. And so I, every step of the way, I, I would pray, hey, God, if this is your will, uh, that I become a Los Angeles police officer, help me pass this phase, help me pass this test. And even in the academy, you know, we have exams, we have uh, self-defense exams, we have shooting exams, we have yeah. – uh, you know, all these uh, written, uh, written exams. And, uh, you know, it's not uh, the cakewalk. You know, you do have to work hard and, and do your best. And so um, I would always pray every every test. God, give me the strength. Give me the the wisdom. If this is your will, and here we are, you know, and I'm retired. So it's pretty amazing. Well, I mean, at least you, you had that, you know, faith going in and, you're able to like draw on just like your experiences and, you know, I mean, held yourself accountable really to get through it. So I think that's good. Um, 
So getting to you get through the is it academy a full academy going through when you do a reserve oh, yes. or is it different? You know, there was another very uh, I call it another uh, 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 turning point in my life where as I mentioned I was working as at the Boys and Girls Club in Carlsbad as the program director and they were doing the background investigation uh, on me uh, for me to join the LEPD reserve program and and I remember this lady. Uh, I, I forget her name, but she was an older lady working at the Boys and Girls Club, and she saw this investigator, this LAPD detective or police officer, talking to people about me. So I kid you not, man, she, she actually grabbed me by my arm and brought me into this room and closed the door, and I'm like, what, what's this about? Because I was the boss, and she's actually doing this, and she, so she sits me down, and she goes, huh, so you want to be a cop, huh? says, listen to me, what I'm about to tell you, it's coming from a divorced wife of a deputy sheriff in San Diego County. So if you want to be a good cop, you better avoid the three Bs, the booze, the broads, and the bills. And then she went on to explain those, you know, the three, you know, Bs and how that you know, caused uh, her her marriage to, to fail. And then ultimately, you know, he wasn't a successful deputy sheriff because of the bills, the booze, and the broads. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that because, again, I grew up without a dad. And uh, growing up without a dad, you know, wasn't easy. Um, but I always uh, remember thinking to myself, because I know what it feels like to grow up with, you know, without a dad, when I become a dad, I'm going to be the best dad I could ever be. So hopefully um, my, my kids would agree. But so so that, that uh, really set the tone for what to expect, because then I learned that early on, the moment that we decide to become police officers, and I'm sure you would agree, that from that moment on, we are walking on eggshells for the rest of our life, because anything we do on duty, off duty, our own time, uh, it's always going to be second guess because we are held to a higher standard, and rightfully so. You know, we right. are a public servant and uh, with given a lot of trust and a lot of responsibility and a lot of authority. So any violation of that can can really tarnish the badge. So I, that's what I learned. I learned early on that I, yeah, I, I better avoid these three Bs because uh, if I want to be successful, you know. And I never forgot that. And there was a point in my career when I was a background investigator that I would investigate the police applicants coming in. Uh, on the ones that I knew I was going to hire and, and select, I would sit them down and give them that same speech. And uh, you know, it was pretty cool later on to see them. Uh, you know, promote and see them uh, go up the ranks and they always say, Hey, you know what? Thank you for taking that opportunity to give me that speech. I never forgot that. And so that was pretty cool. That's good. I remember hearing like they, people would say that I remember in the Academy, like, Hey, avoid these like downfalls. It's like the three B's. I remember that being a part of it. I wonder if it's just like, it's gotta be across the board with the, uh, I don't know if it's just law enforcement or if it's this first responder lifestyle because of how many hours people are working being away from their family, you know, you know, being disconnected sometimes and then falling into these like pitfalls. So I think that it's, it's, it's hard for people to not fall into those pitfalls if you're not careful. Absolutely. And you have to be aware of those pitfalls to begin with. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And for me, I always made it a, my, my pledge just for me that I don't drink and I don't, I don't drink at all. And so that, that helps with the first one. Um, so two out of three, you know, is good. Uh, three out of three is even better. But uh, 
so yeah, so that's that's uh, and and you know, I I also knew early on that I, I wanted to become a detective. So with LAPD, you have to do patrol for at least five years, and then you can start taking the exams to promote to the next rank, whether it's a sergeant, detective, and then from there you just decide if you want to move on to promote to lieutenant, captain, and you know, the rest. Right. Where did you uh, work when you were in patrol? So I, I initially started at, at Hollenbeck, uh, Hollenbeck uh, Patrol, which uh, just uh, last this last Tuesday, uh, they they have a, a monthly lunch lunch uh, gathering, and all these uh, retirees from Hollenbeck show up and have lunch together. And that's actually pretty cool. I, I saw some folks that I hadn't seen in years, and just to see them again and reminisce and talk about the good old days, yeah, that was pretty cool. But so I started at Hollenbeck, but within I was there during when the riots broke out. As a matter of fact, uh, we're the only we're the second academy class that we were activated during a riots situation uh, because technically we were still part of the academy when the riots broke out. It was ninety two, right? April twenty nine, nineteen ninety two. So we're coming yeah. up on our anniversary pretty soon. Wow! And um, yeah, that was pretty crazy. Just to you know. When you do the comparison of 1992 to 2020, you know, you think we've learned some lessons, but nah, it's just, uh, history repeats itself, unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it was Hollenbeck, but I was pulled out of Hollenbeck within about two months or so of working patrol. And then I was, I was tasked with uh, being an undercover, uh, officer at a local high school. So I was posing myself as a, a junior in high school. Really? local high school so I, I did two high schools actually one was university high school in in west la area and the first one was van nuys high school out of uh you know the valley in van nuys you must have looked really young when you started that <laughs> yeah i did i did i actually didn't i actually have a I have a picture right here of uh when i was uh in the academy oh, and this wow. is, uh, well i'm standing in front of uh, judge fiddler's courtroom and then just the other day i was in the courthouse and i took another picture of myself uh, in front of Judge Fiddler's courtroom again, and it was actually pretty cool. That's but then anyway, yeah. So working that assignment was actually pretty crazy um, stuff that uh, uh, I, I can't see myself doing that in this environment today because it is crazy. What would they do? Like I don't even know how they would. Like what would you? Is it because I haven't seen? I don't even think they've done that at our department, so I don't know how they would do it. Yeah, you know, we work closely hand in hand with the LA Unified School Police. And we, you know, we kind of use their resources to kind of get our way in. But I just registered like any other kid, and I just played like, hey, my mom and dad they don't care about me. And when they ask for my parents to show up to fill out the paperwork, I says they're not gonna come. Are you gonna, you know, I'll just play the, you know, a sad story here. Are, are you gonna really not, you're not gonna let me uh, want to come to school? And they said, okay, fill this out and just, just sign here like it was your parents. And that's how I would get in and just enroll. And then I remember my very first day at Van Nuys High School, they made me go through like a check-in process, registration process. And uh, and, and they said, go, go see the nurse. So I go see the nurse. And I remember I, I'm, I'm playing the role of a 16-year-old, maybe 17-year-old. But I'm actually 22 at the time. And... <laughs> And and the nurse gives me a piece of paper and a condom. <laughs> like, what's this? Condom? Don't you know what a condom is? Well, no, I I, just, I know what it is, but 
you know, the adult in me is like, why are you giving me a condom? Yeah. Man? So you could, you know, save, save sex. I go, crap. <laughs> so, 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 so I remember, oh, crap, I had to play the role of a, a 16-year-old, not a, you know, responsible adult here. But, That's yeah, funny. so that was pretty good. And the very first kid in my classroom, uh, I think it was math class, and uh, pulls out a line of cocaine and snorts it right, to, right in front of me. I go, oh, what? Wow. That's going to be easy. I go, that's going to be my first target. And sure enough, he is, he's the one that sold me my first, uh, you know, narcotics transaction. And uh, then we arrest him at the end of the semester. So the idea is to go in there and make as many buys as you can to see who, you know, how many people we can get that are dealing drugs on campus. And that's how it worked out. Wow. How many people did you arrest? You know, uh, I remember uh, it was probably summer double digits. I just can't remember, but it, it was, we were busy. That's crazy. And, yeah. And, you know, yeah, I, would, I was driving to school at uh, Trans Am, you know, so it was hard to get people, you know, they wanted, you know, rides and they wanted to go places and they wanted to ditch and do that. It was very challenging, but you, you got to stay as safe as possible. But yeah. yeah it was so, crazy. so did you have a team of people? Uh, with you, or you just by yourself? Well, we were by ourselves, and we just carried a, a pager. You know, back then it was a pager, and that was a way for us to get messages from our detective, who was we would have to check in at least twice a day for safety reasons. And then, uh, yeah, I have to go find a payphone and you know call the office to just check in. And then, you know, we would check in in the morning and check in after school, and and then check in when we were in the watch. Wow. But no, we were there by ourselves, and we were not allowed to carry any weapons or guns, obviously for obvious reasons, and then, uh, you know, definitely don't carry your ID, so you were on your own, really. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I, don't think I've ever, I don't think I've talked to something besides the watching movies. I don't think I've talked to anyone that's actually done that. Yeah, it's a, it's a real 21 Jump Street. You know, yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I couldn't imagine people doing that in this day and age. Like, I don't even know, like, with cell phones and all this other stuff going on. Like, I don't know. I feel yeah, like- but I bet you we, but I bet you they would uncover all kinds of stuff, not just drugs. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure all kinds of stuff is happening on campus, and um, you know, I don't think uh, I think that program was shut down because of, you know, that was the beginning of what the wokeness uh, we see now today. Because uh, Mayor Antonio Villagrosa, as soon as he took office, he disbanded that unit. Again, it was just to let kids get away with stuff. It's like, really? That's, it was bad. Yeah. So then, uh, so you did that right away, basically? You said like two months when you're out there in Hollenbeck? I, I did that two semesters in Hollenbeck. And then after that, I stayed with the uh, the program. And then we just did what we call street narcotics. And because I was so young, I was used to target individuals who were selling dope to, to youngsters, to young kids. So we would investigate all the narcotic clues that would come in when it would list either juveniles selling drugs or adults selling drugs to juveniles. And then I would go in and try to, in an undercover capacity, try to infiltrate that. And and that was pretty, pretty, that was pretty interesting. It was, we had some good times. That's cool. And then, so you did narcotics there. And then what happened after that? What was your next step? Well, I went back to Hollenbeck as a patrol officer and I worked patrol for, a total of about four years, so I didn't do a lot of years of patrol, uh, which uh, included about maybe 
eight months uh, assigned to the Hollenbeck Crash Unit. That's the, back then we used to call the Gang Suppression Unit Crash. It stood for Community Resources Against Street Holdings. It was a, uh, it was a name uh, that was created under uh, Chief uh, Daryl Gates. Can we still call them street hoodlums? Well, not anymore. <laughs> no, no, it's no longer crash. They just call it a gang unit now. They just call it uh. just a simple, basic gang unit. But uh, yeah, uh, so that that was again another the beginning of uh, the wokeness that we see now. So you know, blatant out there, and uh, you know, it's sad. We now you know we're, people are advocating more for criminals than they are for. Um, victims or law-abiding citizens who pay taxes. You know, they're, they're advocating more for those that violate the law and create chaos and, you know, riots and stuff instead of uh, supporting our law enforcement officers. And I think it's crazy. I think every day when I, yeah, if you see people who are getting arrested and then getting let out like a day or two later and you're like, what is going on around here? Yeah. So right after Hollenbeck, uh, you know, um, some cases in patrol kind of stay with you. There was uh, one on, on a Christmas day. So it must have been, I want to say, 1994 on Christmas day because I, I left in the middle of 95. So it must have been like 94 Christmas day. Uh, I was just out of roll call. I was still putting gas in our police patrol car. And my partner was still making his way to, to the car. We already had decided that he was going to be the driver. So... I was trying to get his attention on, we call radio simplex, saying, hey, Troy, we got to go. We got a hot shot. It was a code three call that came out. And you know, it's a really great, you know, it's going to be a, uh, a good call. When I say a good call, I mean the fact that it's not going to be a, a false alarm or anything like that. Because even the, the dispatcher, the RTO, we call him, she was breathing heavy and she was like trying to get the words out. And yeah. I go, Man, this sounds good. And she, you know, beep, 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 you know. Hollenbeck units and four out of 15, a shooting just occurred, uh, two victims down, um, and fire department, you know, responding, blah, blah, blah. And, and wow, well, Christmas Day? I'm like, really? And we get out there, and sure enough, uh, as soon as we get there, and it's out in El Sereno, so we had a good distance to drive. The fire department's outside, the fire captain, I won't forget, he says, hey, guys, we're not going in until you clear it. We were here last year, same day. Their 16-year-old committed suicide with the rifle, so we're not going to go in there until you guys clear it. I go, wow. And we get in there. There's kids crying everywhere, and uh, there's uh, there's smoke from the residue. The, the guy ended up shooting his wife point blank with the shotgun and then took the shotgun, shot himself, but he, he only shot half of his face off, and he was still alive. And... Uh, the partner I was working with, he's a great guy. His name is Troy Gatton. Well, there's a little inside story to this. A couple of years prior to this incident, Troy was involved in a uh, situation where he recovered a shotgun uh, after a, a vehicle pursuit. And when he recovered the shotgun, it accidentally discharged and it shot off. Oh, my his, goodness. Uh, shot off one or two of his fingers, of his hand. And uh, honest to God, when I said this, I wasn't even thinking about that, but I was I was going back to my background and my history working with kids and whatever, and I saw these little kids crying, and it was a mess. It was chaos. I thought, hey, you know what? I'll take care of the kids, and I saw the shotgun you know, to my right, and I said, Troy, 
once you grab the shotgun and secure it, <laughs> he comes up to me, he goes, fuck you. <laughs> I go, oh, no, 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 try it. Okay, okay, I'll get the shotgun and you get the kids. But it didn't even dawn on me at the moment. That's so funny. <laughs> that that's what he was thinking about. It wasn't until afterwards, just down the street, you know, now we're waiting for the detectives to, to come out because now we got, you know, a dead body there and we're outside and, only you know this is like only police officers could understand this. So we're outside waiting for the detectives and you know, secured crime scene. And there was a kid that lived down the street who happened to be one of our cadets. And since he lived down the street, you know he's not bringing out. He's, he's you know, it's Christmas, right? He's, so he's bringing us tamales and buñuelos. And so there we are. We're, we're eating. And I remember as I was getting ready to take a bite, and I saw Troy's hand. It reminded me about his accidental discharge. I says, oh, Troy, dude, I am so sorry, dude. When I asked you to do that, I wasn't, I wasn't messing with you or you know, screwing with you. Or please forgive me. That's that's not what I was thinking. Now we now we laugh about it, but uh, it just you know those those are kind of those are comic relief situations, right? That we can yeah. use that in a you know distress ourselves because you know we see all kinds of crazy stuff, and uh, sometimes some things are never unseen again, and so. I still see those images in my mind. You know, the poor wife and blown up, and these kids crying. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, I know some things you just don't leave. You don't leave you at all. I'm curious about his hand, though. He lost two fingers. Yeah, either one or two fingers, but uh, yeah, but he's fine. You know, they're still he's still a, able to work. Yeah, he it wasn't a shooting hand, so I think uh, he was able to work still. So uh, they cleared him to come back, uh, and he, you know, I. I Troy, I believe he just retired maybe a couple of years ago uh, from working at Major Narcotics. Great guy. Um, I'm glad I got an opportunity to work with him. Hopefully we could connect sometime soon. But, yeah, I was hoping to be able to learn when he would have his retirement party because I wanted to share that story so bad. That was, that's hilarious. That's funny. <laughs> he thought you were messing with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, so after that, you know, after working home back patrol, I, I did a stint at uh, backgrounds for about two and a half years investigating the background investigations for police applicants. And that was that was the beginning of my investigations. Uh, I got to see one of the, actually probably the best polygraph examiner ever to exist, and that is uh, Irvin Youngblood. He was our polygraph examiner. And back then, we didn't polygraph all the police applicants. We only polygraphed the ones that had issues come up in their background and there was some adverse information that needed to be somewhat resolved or clarified. Okay. Especially if we learned about something that's adverse or negative and they deny it. Okay. Well, well, let's go on the polygraph and see if if you're denying it is actually true. So by watching Irv Youngblood conduct these, uh, these polygraph examinations and then the interrogations afterwards, man, it really inspired me to, to want to become a detective because he, I learned a lot from him. As a matter of fact, one of the very first cases that that I the first confession I ever got was because I Irv Youngblood couldn't get this guy to confess, and we were uh, we had information that this guy who was a police applicant, believe it or not, was part of a ring of ATM burglaries. Uh, he they were committing ATM burglaries because he worked for Wells Fargo Armored Card Services, and so it was an inside job. So they would hit these ATMs. Well, with inside information, and you know, they got away with millions and millions of dollars. Wow! And that's the information I uncovered. And uh, Irv, give him the exam, and this guy failed it. 
failed him miserably. So Irv went in there to try to get him to confess, and he wouldn't give it up. So then I remember Irv says, hey, I tried my best, but he's not giving it up. I says, well, do you mind if I try? And you know, I could tell he, he was a little annoyed by being my guest. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I go in there. <laughs> That's funny. And within 15, 20 minutes, the guy, I, I pushed his button somehow and confessed. Do you know what you said? Do you remember? Uh, I just... Uh, I just say, uh, you know, I, I, I think I played to his ego because like, he, he came off as a supposedly proud Puerto Rican and this and that. And I just, I, I, I don't exactly remember what I said, but I remember I was attacking his his manhood and he wasn't man enough to uh, to tell the truth. And I said, look, the other guys already got in prison. I already talked to them. They're in prison. They're, they're serving time. You got away with it. So so that's it. I mean, why, why don't you be man enough and... Uh, you know, you have all this money, you have all these boats, you have all, and I started just, and he said, all right, fuck it. Yeah. I told him which ones to hit. I would say, hit this one, hit that one. And, you know, and it was like, and Irv Youngblood is watching this. And he's like, he did good. So that, that really was what got me going. And um, I, I started to go to all these uh, um, interrogation schools, you know, Batty and all those. And um, I, I, I love, you know, getting people to, to confess and or to the truth because, I you know, we follow the truth, wherever the truth leads us. And if the truth leads us that somebody did not commit a crime, then, man, I, I'll, I'll go there. You yeah. know, I'll, you know, and, that, and I've done that many times. There's many people that were, you know, exonerated because of my investigation. And then there's others that are still in prison today because of, you know, what they did. And I just helped them get there. I didn't put them in prison. They did. They put themselves in prison by the evil, violent crimes that they did. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's that's how it all started for me. And then when I made a detective for the very first time in May of 99, I was assigned to Newton um, burglary for one month. And then they uh, asked me to join the sex crimes unit in the following month. So from June of 99 till today, I've been investigating sex crimes. Um, and uh, from... Uh, 90, from 2004, 2005, uh, I was investigating not only sex crimes, but crimes against children, crimes of physical abuse, sex abuse, and murder of children, including uh, the sexual exploitation of children. So, uh, that's a, so I feel that, like that's a long time. I mean, is that normal for people to stay in that field for that long? Because, I mean, I feel like if you would get worn down by what you see every single day, 20, 20 plus years yeah, of the what, same type of type of work. Yeah, you know what? It's 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 not that normal. And then, uh, but I began to notice that many people do stay for a long time because you know what? It really takes about seven eight years to really feel like you got a handle on it to build some sort of an expertise on it because there's a lot to learn uh, in these uh, investigations and they're very complex and so many different angles and so I mean. Um, just when you think you've seen it all and you, you don't, you see something else. And, um, you know, I thought I seen it all. And then I, I still, even now working on the civil side, and it's like, you know, I, I still see it, unfortunately. Because, you know, what we find out here on the civil side is most victims, uh, it's more common that victims of childhood sex abuse or uh, sexual assault, they don't talk about what happened until decades later and, and sometimes until they right. reach age 50. There was a study done in, I believe it was in Germany, and uh, the study showed that 
most victims uh, never talked about it until age 51 for the very first time. Really? What, what about at that age is a uh, key, do you think? Like, what, what is it? It could be, you know, a couple of things, a uh, midlife crisis, and now they just, you know, they see their own young children, uh, grandchildren, and maybe they see a connection and they don't want them to suffer something, so they go out and you know, they say it. Or, you know, like in our case, you know, there's this bill called AB 218 that allows victims to uh, sue their offender or anybody anybody else that played a role without any statute of limitations, going back as far back as they want on the civil side. So when people learn of that particular bill and that information, many of them started calling and getting forward, and we're, we were the first persons they ever told uh, during our intake process. And that's pretty uh, phenomenal uh, yeah. uh, situation. Um, and it just, you know, breaks your heart and the pain is still, the pain is still there and it's, it's still fresh and yeah. it's still you know, very painful and yeah, it doesn't matter how much time, but, but it's, you li- see, it's you life altering. Of, I think people, yeah, yeah. victims is life altering for them. Absolutely. And one of the things that has motivated me to, to do what I do is, is I actually allow myself permission to feel their pain. Um, um, because that's what drove me to fight for their justice and fight for, for, you know, and I was very open with my victims. I, I told them, Hey, you are the most important case I'm going to investigate. I made that very clear to them. Um, I wanted them to know that that's the approach I was going to take that I'm investigating the most important case yours. And, um, I went a long way because when you, when you get the victims to cooperate and tell you their story, the more likely you're going to be able to solve it. Now, you may not always get the outcome that they want. Um, and I was very careful not to make any promises like that. But, you know, because sometimes, you know, we just can't get them the justice that they want right. or clear it. But at very least, we help them through that journey and, and let them know that we give it our best shot. What was your process for that? You said like you feel you allowed yourself to feel their pain. Like what was your process for that? Well, when I would hear them tell me their story, um, and when I when I hear their story and I feel their pain and they start crying, uh, I think many people uh, try to build uh, barriers to kind of protect themselves from that. But and then you know I would give them access to me whenever they wanted. So they had my cell phone number, my email address. And if they felt comfortable calling me, texting me, email me because they had a question or they were just, you know, wondering what's going on, anything, or even if they're just, if they just wanted to vent, if they got any triggers, any, uh, anything sets them off. And and it it really uh, went a long way because um, again, again, they were just not, they felt like they were just another case or another number when I was on the case. And uh, it, it, it paid off dividends because, uh, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I, I kept in contact with some of my families that I've helped out, helped out throughout the year. And we still communicate either through Christmas cards or social media. And then just to see them where they're at now in their life uh, as to where they were when I first met them. Man, it's just amazing. It's just, uh, and I tell them, I says, look, because many of them were 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 harmed by somebody they knew, somebody they loved. Right. You know, it was either, it was either a parent, a family member, or a grandfather, or, you know, somebody that they loved and trusted. And so, 
uh, there was a phenomenon where the mothers, you know, I could count on one hand after all these years, the amount of times that a mother actually did the right thing and support uh, the victims, uh, I could count that in one hand, which it's a sad commentary. Really? So that means that many of them uh, showed support for the suspect or the perpetrator in these cases than the victims themselves. So that was a an added trauma, an added violation to, to the victims. So I would always say, you know what, um, you know, say, Mihai, you've been through a lot. I couldn't even imagine what you must be going through. But I can tell you that I know, I have no doubt that when you become a mom, when you become a parent, because of your experiences in life, you're going to be such a great mom. You're going to love your children. You're going to provide a, a loving environment, a secure environment. And, um, you know, just trust me on that. And and then to see that actually play out now with some of these families that I kept in contact with, it really blesses my heart. And it made it, you know, very worth the uh, the sacrifices because there was a lot of sacrifices, you know, being on call, being yeah. called out at crazy hours uh, on weekends, you know, you know, missing the, the birthdays, uh, the uh, holidays. Um, but, uh, you know, at one point, um, um, the toughest, the toughest year for me was 2016. And if you want, we can talk about that, but that, you know, there was a lot of, uh, sacrifices that you know we as police officers detectives we actually do make um, and sometimes at a very uh, deep cost but fortunately for me um, I recognized uh, there were times where I needed help and times when I needed you know to reach out and uh, yeah because uh, uh, for me to get past 2016 was a sort of a miracle well, you know, I definitely want to touch on that um... Well, I had a quick question before we touch on 2016. What um, were there any cases? Well, it seems like, first of all, I want to recognize that it seems like your compassion for people and the children and the families. I think that it it really bleeds through, shows through in who you are, and that's that's really probably what gave people not only a sense of like an outlet to talk to somebody, but really like that closure. Even if you weren't able to give them the result that they wanted at the end just giving them that right. closure. And, and I think that, I think that doesn't go like, it goes unsaid too much. Like we, I don't think we, we acknowledge that for um, ourselves, like the amount of time and effort that you put into the, their cases, you know, and you're able, able to give them that space and really like, that's what this is all about. Like holding space for people, but just the ability, ability for you to do that for them is super important. Right. So I definitely, I want to acknowledge that for you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Was there anything that you had to see, or, uh, or not, not, not even specific cases, but like, was there any times? And maybe this is about twenty sixteen too, but like that you had to like take a step back, where you're like, "Hey, I can't do this case." Um, knowing your father, was there anything that affected you, where you're like, "Hey, I can't, I, I need, I, I can't do this," or you just needed to do something different for yourself? No, and if anything, it was just um, it was just to give me a greater resolve to actually, you know. Do it because when I when I first attended, I was still a police officer rank, and I attended I think what they call juvenile procedure school. And during the juvenile procedure school, they talked about the sexually exploited child unit and what they do, and the physical abuse cases that they see, and the murder cases that they see. 
Um, and I walked out of there going, man, I, I walked out of there with a lot of respect for the detectives that did, you know, investigate those those crimes. But I said, man, nah. I remember saying it out loud. I said, I could never do that. And then little did I know that I actually could do it. So I think sometimes people underestimate, um, you know, what they can and cannot do. And so uh, I have no regrets uh, in, in this assignment. And the way I landed this assignment actually was by a D3 named Maria Mar um, Maria Rivas. And uh, she saw something in me that she said that you're good with people. I think you'll be a great investigator for sex crimes. And she sold it to me when she said, working a sex crime sexual assault is like working a homicide. And I was sold because, you know, as a, as a detective, everybody uh, has the goal of becoming a homicide detective. That's, you know, that's the, the dream. And that's what happened. So, you know, when I, I worked the robbery homicide division for five years, investigating very complex uh, sex cases and, you know, not to, to my own horn, but I, I felt it a, a great honor when my peers, my fellow detectives were literally, I remember one time uh, my partner, uh, he's on the phone and then he hangs up. He was talking to somebody, then he turns and he looks at me and goes, hmm, what would Moses do? WWMD. <laughs> and, and then that that became like, so to me that, that you know, they, I, th I think Moses would do this, do that. And I go, then, you know, now people were looking up to me for, my my thoughts, my experiences, you know, my approaches and, and what I've been, that, that said a lot. And that's when I began to realize that uh, I was getting respect by the prosecutors, judges alike, and uh, even defense attorneys. So anybody out there that's con considering or you're currently a detective, don't be intimidated by these defense attorneys. Go up there and shake their hand, introduce yourself uh, before the hearing before you take the stand and let them know that, you know, you're not intimidated by them. You're not afraid and take them head on. I mean, I got, I got to a place in my career where defense attorneys would just tell the court, no questions from her really? during a uh, cross. And yeah. And I would ask them later, I said, Hey man, I was looking forward to your cross examination because I know that's why I didn't call you. <laughs> so they want to question. This is what am I going to go up against you? There's no way. So, uh, so anyways, yeah. So, you know, you just, it, it's going to take you a while to become a, a solid detective. There's a lot to learn, but just my, my advice is you got to give it your best shot. You got to treat each case as if though it was the most important case, because that will keep you honest. Uh, and, and, and it ultimately, it, it really goes a long way for the victim and the victim's family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in a, 2016, I was working as the night watch supervisor of uh, a team of four detectives and, and myself out of the abuse child unit out of uh, LAPD's juvenile division. And that year, man, I, I got the worst cases ever in my career, kind of back to back. And uh, that's when I began to see some signs of, uh, you know, my body speaking to me that, hey, uh, that's when I realized my blood, I had high blood pressure. Uh, I had a situation where I felt I was having a heart attack, but it, it, it wasn't. It was just the fact that my my blood pressure was so high that that mimicked the, the symptoms of a heart attack. And um, but it, it was, and, and I probably hit uh, 
severe depression. Um, I, I felt it. Um, and so I sought help. And you know, one of the things that kind of helped me come out of it was when one of my psychologists said, you know, I would say, why me? Why, why did I get these cases? Why did I get, why was I the one on duty when this call came out? Or why did I get this case and that case? And why did I get these cases back to back? You know, but that was, that was what I was pondering. And that's what I was reflecting because it, it was hurtful. Yeah. If I get emotional, that's, um, those are some triggers. So, and then her response to that, the, the, the psychologist, she was awesome. Uh, she says, well, why not you? This is, uh, I, I couldn't think of anybody better to be in charge of this investigation because you handle it the best way anybody could ever handle it. And uh, victims deserve that. And as soon as she said that, I, it, it really changed my my perspective, my view on this. And then instead of seeing me as, you know, woe is me, you know, I'm a, you know, another victim of you all, I says, wow. Yeah, why not me? You know, why, you know, you know, I did. I did do all these things. And yeah, it was painful. But you know what? I got, you know, baby, Yon- um, well, he's not a baby. His name is Jonathan, Jonathan Aguilar. He's known as the little boy in the closet uh, from Echo Park. When we, when he was found dead inside this closet in Echo Park, he was 11 years old, Adam. But he only weighed 33 pounds. Oh, my goodness. And... When, I, when we first see him, we think he's bruises all over. We later find out that there was those were not bruises, but on you know on first glance and second glance, you think he's bruised everywhere. And that was just part of the uh, the body decomposing and eating itself up to survive because he was being starved to death, basically. And um, yeah, it was it was horrible. And it's just really sad that this poor kid, you know, beautiful little boy who was had a form of autism, uh, but nothing too severe to, to, you know, cause this. And I'm being very careful what I said, because we're still waiting for uh, the trial to go on, even though I retired. Oh, really? I I, um, I already told the prosecutor, in fact, I, I connected with the prosecutor uh, last month on this case, because it's, it's, it's a new prosecutor. So I want to make sure that that new prosecutor knew that, hey, even though I retired, I'm coming in as your investigating officer on this case whenever you're ready to go. Um, thankfully I have a, you know, my boss is very supportive of that. I told him when I, when I took this position here at the law firm that I still had about four or five court cases that were, you know, either a fatality or, uh, or homicide because I did work traffic collisions, uh, for a while as well. And I had a couple traffic fatalities that are still pending in court. So in all, I think I have like five court cases still pending. So, which I'm going to come back and still advocate for those victims so yeah so Jonathan that was the first it happened in the in the summer of 2016 um like I want to say it was August and uh so it was a very very tough case uh it it was so tough that we actually debriefed it with everybody involved in the case with the criminalists the photographer the responding officers and the responding detectives, we all got together with our department psychologists and we debriefed it and it was much needed. Um, and then uh, on October 31st, 2016, uh, this case really uh, 
get some even just talking about it. It's okay. Take your time. Uh, Ruby Ruby was uh, murdered by this guy named Ricardo Utui. So if your uh, viewers and listeners want to Google Ricardo Utui, U-T-U-Y, he uh, murdered uh, poor Ruby um, at the age of three, oh, young gosh. child. And uh, this guy was plain evil. Long story short, um, Ruby was accustomed to show up with her dad at their place of uh, employment. Her mom and dad worked together at this large factory where they uh, sold clothing. So it's a seamstress factory. And this guy, Ricardo Otui, was a co-worker that started working there just two weeks prior to this horrible day. And totally unannounced, unprovoked, when Ruby was there, he snapped and, and killed her. But prior to the, 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 the Ruby's last act in her life was she had just arrived to this place of employment, to this factory with her dad. Her dad picked her up from the daycare because daycare closes at a certain time, so he needed to pick her up and needed to come back to the factory to finish off his, his, you know, his work. And something they did every day. It, was, it wasn't anything unusual. And Ruby, uh, her dad bought her a uh, package of cookies So Ruby uh, opened up her cookies. Her her mom was there, and she gave her mom two cookies. And then she said, Mom, I'll be back. I'm going to go to Dad and give him a cookie. So she grabbed the cookie, and she went over to her dad, Dad's workstation, which was directly across from this guy, Ricardo Utui. So Ruby gave her dad a cookie and then started to walk back towards her mom, and that's when... Utui snapped and attacked her at knife point and stabbed her three times. All, all three stab wounds were fatal. And nobody really saw this happening because everybody's with their headphones working and all that. So they just saw, they did see, somebody saw Ruby like running and then the mom saw Ruby coming towards her running and she kind of saw Ruby, uh, this guy Ricardo Utui behind her and he, she couldn't understand why the, you know this is happening. And then all the mom sees is um, that he made some sort of motion. She couldn't even make out what it was. But the next thing she sees is, is her daughter bleeding. And she she picks up her daughter and she's crying for help. And the guy takes off running. And so that's how it went down. And this guy you know took off. He he was a wolf. He left his things behind and he ran away. And Ruby's parents tried to get somebody to drive him to the hospital and they met the paramedics somewhere halfway through and she ended up dying at the hospital. Um, but that was, that was on Halloween, October 31st. Adam, when I heard that call come out, I actually was speaking to the stepdad of Jonathan Aguilar, the little boy I was just talking about. I was giving that father, that stepfather, an update on the investigation and update on some DNA results. And when I heard the radio call come out, because you could, I was monitoring the radio frequency. I remember telling the dad, "Oh man, this call sounds pretty crazy, pretty wild. I hope they don't call me. 
<laughs> but they did, and I responded. And uh, I'm very grateful for the LAPD Newton officers and their gang unit because they, I remember they approached me and said, sir, we're going to catch this son of a bitch. We're not going home until we do. And they were, I already called my wife and said, cancel my you know, Halloween plans or whatever. Several of them did that, and that said a lot, you know, for you know what we do. You know, that's that's us. The bell rings, a child gets killed, all hands on deck. Yeah. And I think, I think he felt the pressure. He felt the pressure. I was able to even get the the judge on the line to give me a verbal warning, a, a verbal search warrant, and the judge didn't even know that we could do that. I says, "Yes, you can. I just got to record it, and I'll type it up later." But I need this. I don't have time to do all the documents. I don't have time for that. It's just so fluid. I need a search warrant for his phone records. I want to know who he called, who, you know, who's called him. I want to be able to ping his phone and do all that. So the judge granted to me verbally, you know, I, I told her, I just got to record it and you do your thing and swear me in and I give you my affidavit verbally and you tell me yes. And, and that's what we did. And so, um, and yeah, so we were on him. We were, we were on him so I think he felt the heat that he eventually surrendered to the Rampart Station. Remember, this is Halloween, so uh, the guy named Cowboy, uh, he just retired out of a uh, Rampart veteran uh, police officer. I think by then he, he even had like 30 years on. He's working the desk, and he happened had he happened to have the Spanish language interpreter on the line from our communications division. So as he was doing something else with another uh, victim there making some sort of police report. He says, hey, can you talk to this guy? This guy wants to say something. I don't know what he says. And he's confessing to this interpreter of what he did to Ruby. So the operator is looking up on the computer, and she was able to connect the dots. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a stabbing in, in Newton. So let's, yeah, so the operator tells this officer that we know him as Cowboy. He's a great guy. He, uh, he then says, oh, crap. <laughs> You know, working the dust, you never know what you're going to get, right? Yeah, so true. He draws down on him, and he calls for backup, and then they handcuff him. And in that little, he had a little shoebox. In that shoebox, he had the bloody knife, and he had a gun. So thank God that there was no more casualties out of this, because it, it could have been ugly had this guy opened up there with all these kids at the, the police station grabbing candy and what have you, in their little costumes. Jeez. So, yeah, that's Adam. And Adam, when I interviewed this guy, I interviewed the devil himself. I could feel it. And only those detectives that have been there know what I'm talking about. You could feel that evil spirit that it was the devil himself. He even started talking about the Ouija board and all kinds of crap like that. And I recognized that feeling because going back to the early 2000s, I had a case where I interviewed the devil himself in that case. In that case, I felt that same spirit, and so I, I, I recognized it right away. And um, you know, back then I was a so, so, you know fairly newer detective, and now I'm you know, more seasoned. So I just remember this time, you're not gonna screw with me this time, you know, devil. And I got him to confess, and he actually admitted to three other, two other crimes uh, with the very similar MOs. Um, and when I made the press release, and I and I said, hey, we're looking for additional information. Anybody that knows anything. I didn't give any specifics because I, I didn't want to give out any details that could um, contaminate the investigation or, or, or contaminate someone's uh, 
you know, statement. But I just said, look, I just know that we're looking for somebody named Alex, and we're looking for anyone who may have had any history with this individual going as far back as whatever I said. And sure enough, the very next day, another victim came forward. She called me, hey, I saw you on TV. That's the same guy that attacked me at knife point earlier in the year in March. Uh, he tried to kill me, but I survived. And I go, wow. And that case was also at a uh, at a factory that, that sold clothes. What was the deal? Um, like, what did he, did he have a reason? Or he just say, yeah, I did it? He's evil. You know, um, he, he, he did it. Um, and I could talk about this one because this has already been resolved. And he's, he's serving 27 years to life in prison. Or 27 or 37 years to life, I forget. Um, which concerns me because now under elder parole, you know, he might be eligible to be paroled in 20 years, which is crazy. But he pretty much said that uh, he has a daughter, same age as Ruby, and DCFS removed um, his daughter away from him. So obviously we now even know why they his daughter was removed. He, he was not someone that could be around children. Yeah. So he felt that he, uh, if Ruby's parents... Uh, if, if he can't have his daughter, then Ruby's parents can't have her daughter, their daughter. It's just a bizarre way of thinking. And um, he said he alluded he alluded to some nonsense that uh, the dad dared him to do it or anything like that, which is BS. How old was he? Um, um, in his late twenties. So he's pretty he's pretty young, and. Um, you know, on a side note, about a year or so after the murder, his his ex-wife, who has two children with him, called me and said, would you speak to my son? You know, he's 15 years old. He's going through a lot. Uh, I said, sure. I mean, uh, bring him to me. And... Um, we had an appointment scheduled, but they never showed up. And when I call, he says, he doesn't want to talk to you. He says, okay, I get it. I respect it. But I've always wondered, what was I going to say to him? Yeah. What was I going to say to this 15-year-old that his dad, you know, is incarcerated for killing a three-year-old? Man, what do you say something to? What do you say to this? Yeah, I don't even kid? know. I'm you sure you would have figured it out if you had to. Yeah, and uh, – I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine going to that. Like as a was a father, you know, just even as a, just a police officer in general, like going to that call because it's not it affecting how it's affecting you. How many officers were on that incident? Like you said, all the detectives, the people that were working the case, and these images don't leave you. No, you know, and, and, and uh, what really made this case even more special uh, for me and more profound was. So I even called in my partner uh, who was on a day off and, you know, I'm known to crack jokes and, you know, kid around or whatever. So when I actually called her to say, yeah, I need you to come in, she said that I was kidding. And I says, look, no, I'm not kidding. This is a really awful case. I need you. Because um, she was my only other Spanish speaker because the person I was working with at the time was first day assigned to work with me. So, you know, I don't know what I was I don't know if I had somebody, you know, knowledgeable or am I going to have to, you know, train right. or, or what. So with all due respect, I, I didn't have time for that. So I, I called and I authorized my my my, uh, my my partner, Sandra Platero, to come off from her day off. And she graciously accepted and I'm glad I did. So she was tasked with going to the hospital to meet with the family. 
and I was still busy with the crime scene and I was busy with the interrogation and then it was just, you know, chaos, right? Um, and the clock's running because now he's in custody, so we, we can't stop. We got to get ready for filing the case. So, I, but I told my partner at, at some point, you know, go home, get some rest. I'll, I'll I'm going to stay here, sleep in the car for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll pick it up. And then I, I get a phone call. Um, so this, this happened October 31st around, I want to say, 4 p.m., and then I worked in through the night, right, all the way into the night. So I finally told my partner to go home. But remember, she was the only one that met the family, and she so she had all the the information about Ruby, and I, I didn't know much. And I get a phone call around 7 o'clock by a social worker from the Department of Children and Family Services, DCFS. And she's inquiring about the investigation and, and who the suspect is. And I says, you know, on this one, you don't have to worry about it because it's, it's not the father. Initially, there was a report that the father may have done this, but no, it was just a miscommunication. It was that the father was at the scene, but not that the father did this. So in any event, a referral went out to DCFS, and so now they're following up. So I said, no, you could close it out. I don't, I don't want you to stress this family out more than they already have to. The, the the suspect is a stranger. But you know what? But now that I have you on the phone, uh, Ms. Social Worker, can you please give me her Ruby's date of birth? Because I, I need it to fill out uh, something for our reports that I'm getting ready to book some evidence. And she said, sure. And then she goes, July 17. And uh, I go, what? And she heard it in my voice. Could believe it. That's my birthday. So that was a, from that moment forward, it totally changed um, everything about this case for me. It made it more personal. And uh, it just, then when I learned about Ruby, that she was also a preemie baby, she was born prematurely and she almost didn't even make it. You know, that was my story too. I was a preemie baby and I almost didn't make it. And it just all these little similarities and, then, you know, where we where we lay her to rest, and she's 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 resting in peace in the, in heaven, but her body's in the forest lawn, there in Glendale. There I am, you know, paying my respects. The person that was buried next to her died on July 17th. It's like, like, oh my gosh, it's like wow. all these July 17 things. So, anyways, I became really close with the family, as you can imagine. Um, you know, we, we have a special bond and uh, I got to give it to her older brother. Her older brother is in the process of becoming a police officer with LA Unified School Police. And really? When I heard that, I was so happy to to uh, support him and, and encourage him. Pretty amazing. But yeah, so that's, so Jonathan in, the, in August and then Ruby in October 31st, back to back, two tough cases. And then the, the nail on the coffin for me was, <clears throat> not going to believe this, but take a guess. How, do you, how old do you think my youngest victim is of a sexual assault, sex abuse? I don't even want to know. I mean, I know, I know you're going to tell me, but I don't, I'm like, this is. Yeah. It's between four weeks and six weeks of being born. That's disgusting. Is, is it? Evil, disgusting. And make things worse. It's all caught on video and audio, and you just hear the baby screams. <clears throat> I don't even know if I can hear it. Like I mean, 
Yeah, it was awful. So, so, so that, I mean, so as you can imagine, you know, Jonathan, Ruby, the, what's the very next holiday after Halloween? Thanksgiving. I just couldn't get into it. I was really down and out. You know, we had a family gathering and we have a pretty large family with, you know, extended family, cousins, in-laws and what have you. I just couldn't get into it. I had that survivor's guilt, remorse, you know, how can I be enjoying, you know, the holidays with my family when, when Ruby's parents are going through hell. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then right before Christmas, I get this other case with the baby. And that's where I, I really, you know, took a nosedive and I was really depressed. But um, I got justice out of this. I, I, I arrested this, this fool because this case actually came to our attention to LAPD <clears throat> sometime in October as well, or maybe September, but nothing was done on it until I got my hands on it. And I got my hands on it because of uh, a head prosecutor, or two of them actually, two head prosecutors were reached out by the investigator that had this case initially with the baby. But they realized that this investigator needed help. And they said, hey, have you tried talking to Moses Castillo about this? And he goes, no. I said, I think you should. And in fact, they called our office and said, hey, Captain, can you give this case to Moses? Because this one needs uh, someone that knows what they're doing. And that's how I got it. Again, that's why I had that question. So why me? You know, why me? Um, but now I know why not me. But, uh, yeah. Um, and... I have a special bond with all these families now. And uh, in 2018, I decided to make the move and leave this assignment and to go work with my buddy, my best friend, uh, Calvin DeHessa, out of Central Traffic Division. Um, and together we had another, you know, a lot of good cases as well. But he asked me to come work with him, and so I did. Uh, and it was a shocker to everybody because everybody thought that I was going to retire there out of LAPD and, you know, some saw me as the, the face of child abuse, uh, you know, cases. And uh, so I went to the Central Traffic Division. There again, I, I met other families in very dark times. Uh, but when I made the transition from working sex crimes and physical abuse cases and murder against children, I invited um, several families that I've worked with in the past. I invited him over to have a barbecue with me and just, it was my way of transition, my way of kind of closing that chapter and, and, and moving on. And uh, I'm glad I did that because I, I got to see something really sweet and special. And then uh, they, uh, they, uh, let's see. Oh, so wow. this is the family. So when you look at this picture, just at first glance, you think, wow, this is a beautiful family. But it's not. It's a, it's a combination of Much beautiful family. Yeah. yeah. And and families that I've met in their darkest time of their life. And and uh, now you see them now, and I'm so proud of them, uh, that they've become great moms and great parents. Uh, and although I'm sure they have their moments, I'm sure they have their good days and bad days, uh, they are thriving and, um, you know, and uh, 
you know, like I said, um, and then with, and then they shared uh, their experiences, and then they shared their gratitude uh, of me. And when I heard them express what they had to say about me, it's really humbling, and it's it's it really uh, it's it gratifies and satisfies my soul to see that. And and um, so yeah, yeah, the impact you must have had on all of them. I mean, can imagine just being having that having that direct yeah. contact with them. Yeah, and these are some really tough cases that, you know, in there is that baby that I only met, you know, the, the baby I just described, uh, the youngest victim, she's in that picture, uh, and to see her now, and, and I'll never forget the very first time I met her. Um, there, is a, there is a portion in, in, in the, I told you this was recorded audio and video, and because it happened in the hospital setting. Um, so anyways, you could hear in one of those, episodes where the suspect himself is saying, wow, you know, she looks scared. She looks scared when she sees me. Well, well no kidding. No fucking kidding. Even, even babies can sense when, yeah. you know, evil is about to happen. Was this a, I mean, and, is it, I don't know if you're going to say, but is this a family member or a dad? Yeah, this was her, it was her father, a 19-year-old oh, son God. of a bitch. Father, yeah, he was his father. And um, so he, he got convicted in serving life. Um, so I remember, I remember seeing that and, and, and hearing that. And so I don't know why, but I, I met her uh, when now she was uh, walking. So she must have been a little bit over one, maybe one and a half. Uh, she was walking because she wasn't really talking much. But I remember feeling a sense of uh, anxiety on the days leading up to the day where I knew I was going to see this beautiful baby for the very first time. Because remember, I never spoke to her doctor because she was just a baby. There was no right. you know, nothing for me to do there. But you know, uh, we still kept in contact, and we invited her, her mom, and her to join us for our Christmas uh, celebration that we hold every year. There was an annual Christmas party that we would throw for the victims that we would serve, you know, that year, as a way of giving them a little sense of hope, a little sense of light, you know, positive experience, and and you know whatever hell they're going through. And days leading up to that Saturday, man, I was crying. I would, I would wake up crying for no reason or just, just break down crying. And then I don't know what it was, but as soon as uh, her mom saw me from a distance and she kind of released her daughter, she walked straight towards me, right? I mean, like a straight beeline. And then she actually hugged me. And when she did that, it just released all kinds of uh, burdens and stresses, and I was so happy. It really turned from anxiety to a sense of special bond, a special love. And and because I was afraid that she might even be afraid of me or whatever. Because again, I, I wasn't sure. Because I was remember, um, I remember her, uh, the suspect saying she's afraid of me, and uh, so I don't know how she was able to. At, the, at that young age, feel free to hug me, and, and uh, yeah. that was very special. I'll never forget that. Uh, we can definitely hear in your voice, like, how connected you are to all of it. And then you, say, you started this by saying, like, that you take on the victim's emotions and the, you know, the feelings that they go through. And, I mean, you can see it in your, you can see it in your testimony today, and, like, you know, how you feel 
and how it comes out like in the emotions and the the constant probably like the thoughts that go through your mind and you're never going to lose that. And I don't know how, I mean, you said it was one year, but I can imagine doing, I can't imagine you doing that 20 years or 18 years, however long you were doing it for. And now still, I mean, you're doing it again. You're still in. So I don't know mm-hmm. how, how, did, how did, what made you decide to go back to it? Like what, was there something that said I, with this experience well, or. Well, like I said, my, my boss here, Samuel Drudulian, former prosecutor, he brought me on to, be his detective for sex crimes and but you know but little did we know he had no idea and neither did i that uh, we were going to get thrust in this chaos by that was that's been created by george gascon and uh you know where he is he has really changed the philosophy of the da's office and how they operate they're literally operating right now as a second uh, public defender's office actually a third because you have public defender's office, you have the alternate public defender's office, and now you have the DA's office acting as a public defender's office because they're, they're no longer advocating for victims and victims of crime. And, uh, I mean, just recently he started to announce that uh, he's coming alongside uh, victims who have uh, victims and crimes of unsolved uh, cases. Uh, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing that. And so when he posted that on Instagram, I actually put a little comment. Well, does that include you're going to apply California law when, when you do catch these guys? Because are you going to apply the special circumstances, the special enhancements, the you know the uh, you know the you know the, the strikes? Are you going to you know apply the law like you're supposed to? Because a lot of these cases do have special circumstances or allegations that can be charged, but he's not doing that. Right. So so now the law firm that I work with, we've been advocating for victims impacted by George Gascon's directives. And let me tell you something. I, I continue to meet family after family after family that have gone through hell. Horrible. Here's, here's another little boy. At this young age, he was kidnapped and murdered. Um, and this is you know, when he was a baby. And then this, this evil monster that did this to him did it to another child. So two children. This guy murdered two children, and before he murdered them, he he, he raped them and sodomized them, or, or sodomized them because you can't rape a male, but sodomized, sexually assaulted them. And George Gascon wanted to give this guy. Um, number one, he didn't. He took away the death penalty, and he didn't even want to give him life without parole. He wanted to give him some sort of determinate life sentence, like. 25 years to life or 50 years to life or whatever, because knowing that all this guy has to do is serve 20 years and then reach age 50, then he could be, he could be paroled. So that's what Gascon was trying to do. Well, we advocated for this family um, and so did the, the Orange County DA's office advocated because the other victim that he murdered was a Orange County case. So uh, it was all over the news, but again, that's one example of many families that I've met. Were you and, able to take it to Orange County or no? No, so ended up uh, he ended up t- he ended up taking a plea deal of life without parole. So uh, yeah, which is something that Gascon didn't want. The, the strange thing about it, Gascon, a special advisor, uh, Mr. Inigas, uh, made it made a representation to the court that this is a deal that they've been working on for months, which is baloney. It's not true. Um, yeah, but, uh, I think so we're a lot of trouble with trusting the leadership. Uh, <laughs> what they're saying these days in those positions. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so it's just one of those things. So I always try to tell, you know, I try, I try to pass on my, my, my knowledge and my experience to the younger ones. So I tell them, I says, you, you, you got to really, you know, dig down and, and, and really treat these families the way you would want your family to be treated. God forbid if your family had ever been involved in something like this, I'm sure you would want the, you know, the best detective to give it the best effort to give it, you know, their all and to, for justice. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, pretty much, you know, a long story told in a, in a brief moment, but, uh, you know, now I'm still meeting uh, victims uh, that are telling us their stories for the very first time and we're advocating for them on the civil side or sometimes as a Marcy's Law representative here. But so the fight continues. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. it's. Uh, so what are you doing really, for yourself? What are you doing for yourself going through? I mean, to avoid going through that depression again um, that you had to deal with before. Is there anything you're take, doing to take care of yourself? Yeah, so I have this routine that I do every Sunday morning. Uh, when we attend church, uh, there's this thing in our church service that we call worship, and it's during that worship time that I literally, very intentional, I pray to God and ask God to clean my heart, my mind, and cleanse my spirit of all this junk that I've seen. But then I begin to pray for my victims, the victims I've helped in the past, my victims that I'm currently helping, and just as important, I pray for the victims that are coming in the future and because uh, they still keep coming. Yeah. And so that's one way I do it. And um, I like to watch my son. Uh, I've coached youth soccer and I've been referee for youth soccer for 10 plus years. And that was my outlet. I got to see kids in a positive light, uh, share some you know, life experiences with them in the game of soccer. I mean, you learn a lot of life lessons in the sport of soccer. And so that's how I was able to, to keep myself somewhat, uh, you know, sane and, and from going, you know, on the deep end. And, and now, I, I, now I just began to coach my son, my son's team again as their assistant coach. So I'm very helpful for that. You know, they're part of the, the club program. That's cool. Yeah. Watching yeah, kids play, play sports is one of my favorite, th- one of my favorite things. Watching my kids play. Yeah. yeah, no, it is, and you know, just not 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 too long ago, uh, and you never know the impact you're going to have, really. But not too long ago, there's this uh, school teacher from uh, from high school at Fountain Valley High School. I've never met this teacher, but we've only been we became friends through social media because uh, several years ago, one of his students was killed on a uh, traffic collision on the way to school one day, and this teacher you know, was very involved in trying to offer some support to the family and giving honor to the student and in this class. And I, I remember reaching out to him saying, you know what, thank you for doing this uh, for your student. It, it says a lot about your character and about how you care and love your students. It's much appreciated. Just I wanted you to know that it's, it's, it's not going unnoticed and we appreciate that. And that's how we became friends to this, this particular teacher. Mr. Schultz, and uh, he now has uh, some of my kids that were my soccer players in his classroom. Oh, really? And I guess he gave he gave an assignment to his class to write about anyone they want to write about 
that has has had an has had an impact in their life even now at this young age. Um, and one particular student wrote about me, and the teacher recognized my name and recognized that he was talking about me. And so that teacher sent me a message on on um, on Facebook and uh, Instagram and uh, say, hey, I just want you to know that uh, this particular student, uh, you know, wrote about you and how you impacted his life and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That is really so, cool. So, yeah, so that's, that's why, you know, there's many stories I could tell you in, in my coaching experience that are, are going to be very, very memorable uh, moments for me. Because I coached all my boys. I have three boys, 24, 22, and 16. Oh, wow. I coached them all, and we have just some really fond memories of some ups and downs in, in the life of soccer, and uh, it's just been a great ride. So that's – I encourage people to have, to find an outlet outside of work, whether it's, you know, volunteering somewhere else or getting involved in your local church, uh, local community-based organizations such as – this was AYSO. Now we're part of club. So, yeah, that's, that's how I was able to uh, – and I'm also very grateful for my wife. She was very supportive and understands it. And she knows when to give me some space. And she knows when she could draw me back in and say, okay, now we need you here with us. So Yeah, that's good. And sometimes we, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all those stories with me. Um, I have a couple questions for you to end this. Sure. One, I kind of brought this up last time when I saw you. But uh, when am I going to see you running for office? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Uh, I am. I, I did explore that idea, and I think it's going to be feasible for me if I do decide to run to run for local office in the city of where I live, and that would be in Orange County. So to start there uh, for the local city council positions. So that's what I'm doing. But 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 I'm also helping people run for office. Like I support 100 percent to reelect our sheriff, Alex Fionella. Yeah. And uh, I'm on Eric Early's campaign. That's Eric Early for CA.com. He's running to be California Attorney General. Um, I support Brian Smith. You know, he, and I is a deputy sheriff running for Board of Supervisors. Um, and, you know, I could go on and on, but if you want to know uh, who I endorse, um, you can go to my Instagram page. It's uh, Detective Moses Castillo on Instagram, and it's just Moses Castillo on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't really use it that much. You can find me there at Twitter as well uh, by typing in uh, Detective Moses Castillo. Oh, cool. And last question. So I noticed that you wear the Superman pendant around your neck. (laughs) I've never seen you without it. Uh, Can you tell us what that's about? And does it go back to when you were a kid? Because that's when you brought it up earlier. No, actually, uh, I think it was my wife trying to be funny. Oh yeah, <laughs> she, she bought it to me. She bought it for me uh, as a gift for uh, my birthday uh, this last time, and my birthday uh, coincided with my uh, retirement celebration. So uh, I think it was to show, hey, you're my hero, um, you're our hero, and uh, yeah. So that's yeah, because it. It also, uh, you know, came with, um, you know, with this. So. He's holding a mug. He says, to the world, you are a dad. To our family, you are the world. Yeah, so that's uh, pretty cool. So, yeah, those are the things that you want to, uh, you know, 
invest in your family as much as possible and because that's what matters most. And really don't major on, on the minors because sometimes we focus too much on the small stuff and make them big than, bigger than what they're supposed to be. But really, if I could just um, close with this, wherever you are in your life, follow your calling. Follow your heart. Follow your calling in your life. And just ask God to guide you. But it's a time to get involved. It really is. We can't sit back anymore and watch the news and watch things play out. We got to get involved. You got to vote. You got to do your research and you got to encourage others to vote and vote the right people in because we're suffering. Elections have consequences and we're suffering those consequences big time. Absolutely. And we need to recall George Gascon. We need to, and it's not only here in, in, in California and in Los Angeles, it's throughout the country. There, there's about 67 rogue DAs throughout our nation that are calling themselves progressive DAs and all they're doing is advocating for criminals and those that accuse of crimes. I, I, don't, I don't get that. I, I will never understand that. If they want to advocate for criminals and suspects, be my guest. But be, a public def- be, a, be a public defender. <laughs> yeah, be a defense attorney. Be yeah. a public defender. Go work for uh, the Project Innocence or something, which I have a lot of respect for. They, you know, I'm not in the, uh, in the business of putting people in prison just to put them in prison. And I agree. There's no way we could afford to have anyone that's innocent in prison. And are there some? Yeah, I'm not going to deny that they don't, they don't exist. But there is a mechanism for that. And, you know, there's systems in, uh, in place for, to avoid something like that. So, yeah, that's 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 what I want to say is that, uh, you know, and, and for you, if you are a victim of a crime, and, and I'm sensitive to the fact that hearing this podcast may have triggered someone's emotion because you know what one out of every third uh, female has been a victim of some sort of violence whether it's sexual assault or physical get help please you're not alone there are so many resources out there for you free of charge and uh, if I could ever help you navigate through anything uh, or walk through walk alongside you in your journey as you recover and, and heal we want to get you to a place from a survivor to a conqueror, someone who's conquered it. So that's that's Moses Castillo for you. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Moses. So yeah, so any if you know a victim of a, of a crime, um, sexual assault, or a, a childhood sex abuse, and get a hold of Moses at is it Dordulian Law Group? Where do you find? Yes, yeah, you can find us at D the letter D lawgroup.com that's d lawgroup.com or you can call our office at area code 818 788-4919 area code 818-788-4919 and i really appreciate all your service and then the service to the community and everything you've done for these these victims and the families i mean everything they've gone through is is just so hard and you've been there holding their hand and being there as a friend a mentor and i think that's really important um so i appreciate you doing that and um I think all of us want to go through our careers and have that kind of type of impact on the people that we meet. So um, you've done it and you're still doing it. And I appreciate you coming on today. So to find um, Moses, you can find him at as detective Moses Castillo on Instagram and Facebook. Yes. Okay. And then um, if you have any questions, you can uh, email me at sturgeonwellness at gmail.com. And you can find this at let's grab a cup.com and on Instagram at, at let's grab a cup and at AP underscore sturgeon. It was a pleasure speaking with you today, Moses, and uh, we'll have more conversations in the future, too, if you have anything um, 
I'm always here. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. And I salute you for your service. And uh, uh, Long Beach has a special place in Arlington because I have family that lives there. So keep up uh, the great work there in Long Beach. And thank you for what you do as well. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. I'm going to end the recording real quick. Let me just get this outro music on and then we'll call it. All right, everybody. Have a great day.